Welcome back, pod people. In today's episode, uh, I have Andrew Lehman and Sean Branny, the director and writer, respectively, of the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society's film adaptation of H.P. Lovecraft's classic short story, The Call of Cthulhu. Now, this is a really interesting and really good movie, uh, and one that has quite a few differences from the ones that I've interviewed people about making so far. Namely, it is a black and white silent film, uh, that it's a short film, and it's an adaptation of a pre-existing uh, story rather than being a completely original script. And so I'm really interested in hearing both of your perspectives on how um, making a silent film differs from making, you know, a, a modern color sound film, talky, if you will, uh, and how adapting an existing story into a screenplay, how that works. Uh, so Sean, you uh, are the writer who adapted the short story. Can you tell us a bit about what that was like? Sure. When we started on, on the project, uh, we had a couple of different goals. Um, one of the things we were hoping to accomplish is we, we had really felt there were a number of adaptations of Lovecraft stories that were already extant. Um, and most of the ones that are, are well known really took great liberties with uh, Mr. Lovecraft's work and we, talking about things like Herbert West reanimator and... sure which really you know it shares the title and a little bit more than that um, but but you know really filmmakers were kind of running roughshod over for old Lovecraft and you know making something new where perhaps Lovecraft's work was the 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 germ or you know genesis behind the idea but it wasn't really a telling of the stories that lovecraft wrote and we wanted to make something that really was recognizable as the lovecraft story uh was there through and through with it the other thing that we thought would be you know an interesting approach um call of cthulhu is one of the most celebrated and emblematic lovecraft stories that there that there is um and so in trying to think about how to bring this big sprawling epic tale to our uh you know the limited resources that we had uh you know we had thought about well what what would it be like if if this story which had been written in 1926 had been filmed in 1926 what if you know instead of being an obscure writer for the pulp magazines lovecraft was uh in with early Hollywood and, you know, uh, people were looking at, at his material as a source for uh, a motion picture. Do you want to talk a little bit about the, uh, the aesthetic inspiration, Andrew? Uh, sure. We, you know, we, uh, we here at the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society have always been interested in Lovecraft's own life and times, the 1920s and 30s. Um, we were certainly been inspired by some of those classic old black and white horror movies like Nosferatu and Dracula and King Kong and, and uh, great, great classics like that. Um, yeah. I noticed a lot of use of sort of Dutch angles and deep dark shadows that reminded me of German expressionist films uh, like the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Yeah. Uh, especially in the dream sequence parts. Yes. Uh, yeah, we exactly. worked with a, a very talented cinematographer named Davey Robertson who, uh, uh, you know, he he learned how to shoot black and white film, uh, and and he can work miracles with you know a single light bulb. He can really create some pretty uh, startling compositions. And yeah, especially for the dream sequences, we were definitely specifically trying to evoke that sort of German expressionist uh, and also uh, Eastern European stop motion animated puppet films from the late nineteen teens and early nineteen twenties. I was there going was to specific, ask about that. Yeah. There was a specific movie we saw up at the H.P. Uh, Lovecraft Film Festival in Providence, Rhode Island, uh, called The Old Man and the Goblins. It's made by Mark Caballero and Seamus Walsh, and it was made, oh, 15, 20 years ago now, I guess. But but they did it in the style of a early black and white German stop motion puppet film. And seeing that movie up in Portland really was one of the things that gave us the idea that it might really 
serve Lovecraft's material well to shoot this movie as if it had been shot in 1926 using the techniques and the style that they would have used then. So that was part of the inspiration for the whole project. And um, uh, yeah, it went on from there. Fantastic. Um, so was the, uh, I, I noticed that, that the Cthulhu at the end of the film um, is stop motion. Was it a puppet or was it claymation or how was that effect done? He's a, he's a puppet. Sean's going to point his camera at it. He's still oh, my goodness. on our bookcase. Oh, that's yeah, wonderful. He's a, he's a traditional um, stop motion puppet with a, a ball and socket steel armature. Um, his head is made of foam latex with wires in each of the tentacles is wired. And his eyes were uh, little tiny Christmas tree light bulbs so that they could light <laughs> up. And thank thank God we did it that way because it turned out using his eyes, it, 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 this, all the scenes he appears in are so dark that those two pinpoints of his eyes were what we used to track the motion of his head when we were doing <laughs> the stop motion animation. If it hadn't been for those eyes, it would have been much, much harder to animate the head. Good. Um, uh, happy uh, the hands are, the body is made of fabric, so it still looks today the same as it looked, except for a coat of dust. It looks the same as it looked the day we shot it, but all the parts that are latex, like his head and his wings and his uh, fingers, they're made of latex and uh, that just deteriorates so quickly over time that Indeed. those parts of the puppet unfortunately are crumbling to pieces, but the rest of them is still in pretty good shape. Although Rod to... looks pretty good on Cthulhu. Yeah, he, a certain amount <laughs> is flattering, but uh, too much, another few years here and his wings will just be skeletons, I'm afraid. Do you happen to know what materials the puppets of the 20s were made out of? I'm guessing latex wasn't as prominent at the time, but I'm not actually sure. I think it depends on the puppet. You know, uh, I think King Kong was made from various kinds of rubber and rabbit fur and uh, stuff like that. I, you know, hmm. those guys were inventing the medium. So I think they went on a puppet by puppet basis and made it out of whatever worked for what they were trying to do. Yeah, I think the, the underlying metal armature everybody figured out pretty soon was a, a yeah. good idea, something that's both yeah. movable, but will hold its position once it's set uh, yeah. in order to do stop motion work. I think the, the original King Kong puppet was at least partly rubber, but I don't think it was, it wasn't like foam latex like we use now. It was probably painted layers and it, it too has deteriorated over the years and there's not too much left of those original puppets now. Sadly, yes. Um, yeah, so, uh, just a, a brief question. You mentioned your uh, cinematographer being able to work magic on film. Was this shot on film or was it shot on digital? No, it was shot digitally in standard uh, standard definition. One reason why we've never issued a, a Blu-ray version of the movie is that the Blu-ray wouldn't look any better than the DVD because the movie wasn't shot in high definition to begin with. Um, it was shot on a Canon XL1 uh, on mini DV, uh, which was a format if you're old enough to remember uh, <laughs> actually, <laughs> I, I am. actual I, little tapes that we had to uh, then uh, transfer to uh, they all had to be captured as digital data so we could do the editing but yeah we have it all on actual tapes tapes like tapes like, wow not 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 mini dvd or, or cdr or anything like nope. that nope. Tapes. wow tapes. yeah that, that was kind of <laughs> heading towards the end of the shooting on tape era um, yeah. And the mini mini DV tapes are are quite small, and again at their time that was a terrific image. But uh, yeah, that time was a long time ago. So yeah, although I mean I th I think that also contributes to the effect. Although of course some um, the actual film of of the old 1920s is sort of arbitrarily high resolution. Um, well, yeah, Dave Dave lit Dave lit scenes for that great lovely 1920s black and white contrast. But then we also applied a lot of effects in in post-production which we put them all together we'd called it mythoscope and it is dave built every frame in the film is a, a multi-layer sandwich of of contrast adjustment and a bit of glow and a bit of old-time film grain uh, so there's a lot of uh, stuff added in post-production to make it look like old film but it, it starts with the way dave lit it and shot it in the first place 
but then on top of that, there's a whole bunch of other stuff going on. Yeah. Um, so in terms of influences, you mentioned The Old Man and the Goblins, which is a modern film. Yeah. Um, and just and we talked a bit about German Expressionism and the old monster movies. Uh, I also noticed that um, a lot of the, the framing of the um, interstitials and the introductory credits and such reminded me of uh, the sort of art deco style that we see in, for instance, Fritz Lang's Metropolis, which came out the year before, or the year after this was set. Right. Um, and so I was wondering, uh, oh, and, and also some, some of the um, scenes that were shot on location in the, uh, in the woods reminded me less of um, films of that era and more of film serials of that era. Mm -hmm. um, things like Zorro's Fighting Legion or The Adventures of Captain Marvel. Um, and so I was wondering what uh, films from that time period uh, would you consider influences? Well, you've you've named a lot. Uh, you know, uh, <laughs> I love silent films. Metropolis for sure, and and Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, Nosferatu. There's a Fritz. I think it's. I can't remember whether it's Fritz Lang or F. W. Murnau, but there's a film. I think it's called Daybreak. Um, and there's a scene when the when the cops are going through the swamp to find the cultists in the middle section. Um, we originally planned that whole thing as a virtually direct quote from the movie Daybreak, a tracking shot through the swamp that ends with the view between the trees of the cultists in the distance with the moon. Um, and we, we did this whole super elaborate tracking shot on the soundstage at the time. It just, in the end, however, we we didn't have proper dolly tracks. We were trying to do it with you know a wheelchair on a cement floor, and the tracking was just much too shaky, and the payoff was not as grand and dramatic as we wanted it to be. So even though we planned this elaborate quote shot from that movie, in the end it was cut from the film, and the the sequence through the swamp is is cut together from other. In I mean Dave. Dave and Sean and I realized on the day this isn't playing the way we want it to play. So we shot a lot mm -hmm. of extra coverage so we could cut right together up. that sequence using other stuff. I, I think an interesting, you know, thing for, for contemporary filmmakers who are making things in a retro flair, you know, <laughs> the world has changed a lot uh, in the last hundred years. And... <laughs> Audiences have changed a lot, um, and and you know we are very sophisticated consumers of visual media nowadays. And you know, you know, in the in the twenties, somebody might have seen a motion picture maybe once a week. You know, and most of us nowadays are seeing, you know, almost, <laughs> five hours of television a day, day daily. Exactly <laughs> the the rate at which we consume and our ability to you know to get it. Uh, it's pretty good these days compared to, so I guess what I'm saying is when a modern audience tends to watch a lot of that stuff from the teens, the twenties, the thirties, you know, there is, I, I think a very common sense of get on with it. You know, I get it. We, we have understood what, what the director is, is trying to communicate to an audience that perhaps wasn't as used to the language of cinema then as we are now. So. You know, that's one of the things that happens in, in Call of Cthulhu is got the rhythm of the filmmaking is much faster than those older films. We, you know, we set th things up, but there's a certain snowball effect to how the whole story unfolds anyway and starts picking up more steam and things just happen much faster than the rhythm tends to be in most of those authentic old, old pictures, which are just you know, they're made at a different time for a different audience. That's one of the things that made me think of uh, film serials in this, is I could easily see this film being split up into two or three sections that each end in a cliffhanger uh, before leading into the next one that you watch next week. Um, and yeah, the, the pacing on those which were 15, 25 minutes long uh, is much more rapid than the pacing on a feature length film like Metropolis, which is two and a half years long. Uh, 
<laughs> which I mean, don't get me wrong. Metropolis is my favorite movie ever. Um, but there definitely is like yeah. a good 45 minutes in the middle where it's yeah. reiterating the same themes over and over. Yeah. Um, cool. Well, do we have the show for you if you want uh, old-timey cliffhangers? Uh, Andrew, Andrew and I have also, you know, in addition to our motion pictures, we've done a series of 1930s-style radio dramas called Dark Adventure Radio Theater. Oh, yes, uh, yes. And we did one show that's seven hours long, but it's broken into 20-minute chunks uh, that each ends with a cliffhanger and then brings in a bit of vintage advertising between each one, and that was part of you know, our, our strategy and thinking about it is going, how are we going to sustain people's interest across a very long time? Um, and one way in, to do it in keeping with a retro aesthetic was to go, okay, well, let's, let's kind of serialize it. Uh, even though that won't be how people are consuming it, it's been broken into kind of digestible chunks as it goes. So, Yeah. Um, that's really cool. Are those uh, the vintage advertisements? Are they actual or are they reproduction advertisements from that time period? <laughs> Some of them are based on real vintage products that are no longer made. Some of them are entirely fictional products that are inspired by really bad ideas for products that people. Yeah, mo mostly we've though found real products that existed in the twenties and thirties. Actually, a lot of them we found in the back of weird advertisements and weird tales magazines yeah. some of them we've renamed the name of the product but things like you know uh, radium radium infusers for your water you know yeah. or ra radio all toothpaste uh, yeah. all kinds of products Bi were made bio that, beans and and electric trusses and yeah there are all kinds of things who used properly were would accelerate your death <laughs> uh, lithiated sodas and yeah, yeah all kinds of fun stuff that uh, has gone by the wayside fantastic uh so you mentioned that you're not planning on releasing uh, the call of cthulhu on blu-ray because there wouldn't be a difference in visual quality um are you planning on uh, releasing it in any sort of streaming capacity either through your own website or on somewhere like tubi or youtube or amazon yeah, we've we've had uh, I was going to say love hate relationships, but I think it's mostly hate uh, oh, relationships with distributors uh, have been very frustrating for us uh, over the years. So uh, at the moment, we are uh, distributor free and kind of shopping around to try and find what's the best solution. Um, okay, you know, independent filmmakers are in a really lousy position relative to to how the streaming business is set up streaming mm. is good if you're disney or paramount or you know you are a major studio and if you're just a dude with a film um you know yeah, it's, it's, that, it's that, not, that like not could, doing you any favors <laughs> yeah it's not like we we could choose to stream it and haven't chosen that it's that you know, there's just no way for us to get into that space at the well, moment. Well, we no, that's I, I wouldn't agree with that because we could do it, but it's like someone else will go. Well, we'll take all the money that comes in for four years and then mm. declare bankruptcy, and then you know, you you will get nothing. So as in indie guys, it's just very difficult to come up with a, a um, scenario that's not flagrantly stupid is or that doesn't or, cannibalize the sales that we can make on disc yeah it's yeah, uh, that makes sense yeah um have you looked into specifically amazon prime's video on demand service where you pay like three dollars to rent it yeah, for 24 we hours have, and that is actually i think one of the better options out there we we do business you know we sell through amazon and we we do audio content through the audible ecosystem and for all the other challenges of Amazon in the modern world, uh, they they actually have been pretty good to deal with uh, in in this kind of capacity. So that I think is one of the more likely destinations okay. uh, for our, I, those films to stream. Yeah, I, I know. I I, I ask because um, I've recommended this movie to friends in the past who have gone, "Cool, where can I stream it?" I'm like, yeah. "Well, you have to buy a DVD," and they're like purchase physical yeah. media what year yeah. is this that's keeping with our retro aesthetic <laughs> go back to a yeah. digital disc a, technology from the early 2000s you know 
Got yeah, it. no, the, the shorter answer is we we are working on it and have been working on it for a long time and have not yet solved how to get it out there in a conveniently streamable format. But Fair if we enough. crack it, man, we'll do it. Um, yeah. Uh, if you would like, I could try to put you in contact with uh, Len Kapasinski, the filmmaker I mentioned earlier, who is also uh, extremely independent, doesn't work with any sort of mainstream production company, but does manage to get his films into distribution and is currently working on doing that for his uh, most recent film, um, Pact of Vengeance. Be happy um, to talk to him. Cool, I'll send you all an email later. Great, thank you. Absolutely. Um, so you mentioned the film Daybreak earlier. Is that the 1918 film or the 1933 film under that title? Do you happen to know? The 1933 film is a Chinese film. It's not that one. <laughs> okay. It's a German film. It's probably, I think it's either Lang or Murnau, I think. Okay. I do want to watch that movie. I've never seen it before. And that's, uh, I'm always happy to uh, uh, discover new great silent films. I had another question, but I've, Managed to forget it. So, what um, what are your future plans for for filmmaking? Do do you, you have? Other... Sorry, uh, it's actually not Daybreak. It's Sunrise. <laughs> Sunrise. Sunrise. Uh -huh. A song of two humans. It's F. W. Murnau, nineteen twenty-seven. Fantastic. Yeah, Thank you. that's the that's the film from which we attempted shamelessly to steal a very nice tracking shot and failed. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, uh, go, going forward, um, you know, we, we made another feature a couple years after uh, The Call of Cthulhu. We did Lovecraft Story, The Whisper in Darkness. Um, and it's a feature length talkie. Um, it's a story that was written in 1931. And so we kept with the aesthetic of uh, filming it as if it had been filmed in 1931. Uh, and we've got, you know, a few irons in the fire now. Um, you know, we were able to step up our production values between Call of Cthulhu and Whisper was just a, a bigger, more ambitious film. Um, but we also started to kind of button our heads against the <laughs> the limits of what one ought to self-produce, <laughs> uh, you know, in terms of, of uh, you know, just, just kind of gambling one's own resources. So... You know, the most of the stuff we've got cooking now is uh, in a more traditional vein of, you know, intended to be produced with other people's money, with distribution in place prior to production, um, kind of more traditional Hollywood low-end filmmaking. So, uh, so until we get somebody to sign the deadline and have us check on one of those projects, uh, we, we bide our time like Great Cthulhu Under the Sea. Indeed. Have you considered crowdfunding? We we have. I think it's unlikely to that we could get the kind of money that we're after. You know, uh, what was something the in the half million to million dollar range? I think we could probably pull through crowdfunding, but I don't think we'd be likely to go. You know, a couple multiples beyond that, and most yeah, that seems cool. We'd like to do our, our, again, a little bigger and more ambitious than, than what uh, uh, our, our models suggest we'd be able to get through a crowdfunding thing. And but even if we succeeded in raising that much money, producing a, a film at that kind of budgetary level just requires, it's not just money. There's an army of people that go along with that. And um, indeed. You know, I just think I, I think it would be better for us and it would be better for the film if it were produced by a proper motion picture production company. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we every time we make a movie and we finish it, we say, well, let's never do it that way again. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, I, I think that I can say that in advance for the crowdfunding model. <laughs> it's a preemptive strike. Yeah. Very fair. Um, I'm curious, uh, what were the budgets of Whisperer and Darkness and The Call of Cthulhu? Uh, Call of Cthulhu, 
trying to remember now. I think came in for maybe a little over fifty grand. Yeah, it, it, it's impossible to say really because we didn't have a budget. We just kept shooting stuff until it was done, and we spent what it took to get what we needed over yeah. the course of like a year and a half. And you know, it was this was you know before this was when HPLHS was still a hobby for me and Sean, and we ran it out of our you know Sean's garage and and stuff like that. So it was never you know, properly budgeted in the first place. Uh, our our forensic the, accounting attempts, though, kind of put it in the, the ballpark yeah. of it. It was probably not more, much more than about $50,000. Okay, um, yeah, not what I was guessing, some five. And then Whisper. I think Whisper was like, like three, 350? 350, 350, 375. Three, yeah, like exactly. So it was less than 400, and it actually had a budget up front because we spent it all yeah. and had to get some more, so. Yeah. Because we hired we hired an actual line producer to to manage yeah. the budget. So yeah, wow. that was something we learned between Call of Cthulhu and Whisper. Yeah. Get a line producer, but um, <laughs> uh, but anyway, that gives you an idea of of, of where yeah. So are. low budget, but not quite micro budget. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm, with Whisper, you know, we were able to shoot on location in New England, and you know, flew our crew and you know a dozen actors out there and stuff. So um, yeah. you know, it was not. Not a couple people in their apartment, sort of kind of filmmaking. Yeah, uh, yeah, I, I can see that the production quality. I've, I've, I have seen Whisperer. Um, I can see that the production quality is definitely uh, stepped up, and the just the fact that it's longer, of course, is going to make it more expensive. Um, and all that talking. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> the ability to record sound. Yeah. Oh yes, I, I meant to say I uh, my compliments to the um, musician who composed your soundtrack for the Call of Cthulhu. I think it. Oh, did. that's a good story in its own right. <laughs> oh, please. Well, there's there's more than one of them. Uh, we we there, there was originally a fellow who was going to write all the music for. Uh, the Call of Cthulhu, and he was with us on set all the time. He's actually in the movie. Um, but I was increasingly disturbed because I hadn't heard any of the music. And I, you know, I kept asking him, when can I hear some of the music? And he kept putting it off and putting it off until one day, finally, I said, "I man, I got to hear something. And he blew up and stormed out. And this was what less than a month before it was supposed to play at the Sundance or Slam Dance Film Festival? Yeah, we, oh, wow. we had been accepted into festivals and stuff. We had deadlines, and um, while we had been in partway through the shooting process, we got an email from you know, we're very fortunate that, that a lot oh, yeah. of people at least know about what we're doing, and a lot of very talented people have offered to participate. And some guy was a composer out in North Dakota, and he was like, you know, I'd love to be part of your thing. We're like, well, thanks, but no thanks. We got somebody else doing it. And then once our, our guy quit, it was like, where's that guy in North Dakota? Get him on the phone. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that was that was Troy Sterling Nice, and we handed him the very daunting task of scoring this movie with, you know, in a matter of a couple of weeks. And because wow. it was really more than one person could handle, we also reached out to a couple of other composers who were here in Los Angeles, a guy named Ben Holbrook and a guy named um, Nick Pavkovic. And uh, they each did, I had, I had hummed out a, just the, the tune of the opening theme and gave it to each of them. And then each of them did his own orchestral version of the opening theme song. So Ben's ended up being the opening credits music and Nick's ended up being the closing credits music. And then uh, each of them also contributed a handful of other cues that are used throughout the film. So Ben and Nick contributed and Troy did most of the rest of it. So between those three guys, we were able to get a complete score uh, in time for Slamdance. That's fantastic. And yeah. it turned out very cohesive. So... Yeah, they did a great job working with each other, and um, surprising that uh, we got away with it. Yeah, <laughs> that's which that is one of the mottos of that film. Really, it's yeah. surprising we got away with it. So. <laughs> oh, fantastic! So um, earlier, when you were talking about uh, potential future plans, I didn't hear you mention the names of any specific other stories you wanted to adapt. Is do you have specific ones in mind? Are you considering making an original piece? Uh, 
original in the sense of not being adapted from an existing story or um, what's your plan and have you not chosen yet? Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, we, we've, we've, I mean, no. <laughs> <laughs> we 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 have picked specific stories. Um, you know, the they have different needs and different kind of budget tiers. So there's one story that's kind of a dreamy thing. We actually, I think, need quite a bit of money to do it right. Uh, we have another one. We, you know, that's a, a classic Lovecraft tale that we, you know, broken out uh, for a pretty detailed feature treatment on. Um, we also uh, have some stuff that we've developed for long form entertainment with television, um, you know, as a thought un underneath it. So we, you know, we've, <laughs> we've got projects of, of just about every length. We have a lot of stuff we've developed that, uh, uh, and is, some of it's gotten, you know, heartbreakingly close to, Oh yeah. Yeah. Getting, getting approved by someone in a position to approve things like that. And then, for one reason or another, as as has happened to a zillion other people, yeah. the rug gets pulled out at the last minute, and and that's the end of that story. Yeah, that's showbiz for you. So, yeah, indeed, uh, you are not the first guest I've had, <laughs> first guest I've had on who have <laughs> said similar things. Yeah. Um. Okay, so I'm curious. Uh, you attempted to reproduce the filmmaking techniques of the era in which the film is set uh, but obviously you also used certain things like you know a modern camera so i'm curious uh if you could talk about what you think has made making this kind of film um easier or maybe more difficult than it was back in the 20s well uh, yeah not having actually lived back in the 20s i can't I can't really say whether what we did was easier or harder. Um, I, I would say a com pretty confidently post-production is easier. Oh, yeah, post-production. <laughs> you know, much, much nowadays, because, you know, even, even what yeah. you can edit together on your phone is pretty yeah. remarkable compared to what it would have taken using 1920s you know, technology. So Some of the scenes are composited together, and some of them are done in the camera. Some of the... In the dream sequences, in particular, we used uh, a half-silvered mirror and forced perspective tricks so that when the character of Wilcox is seen standing in front of Cthulhu's tomb, that's all done in the camera. The, the real actor is standing, oh, wow. is standing much further away, and his image is being captured in a half-silvered mirror. So we're seeing through his reflection to the miniature set, and it looks like he's standing in front of it, but really it was all done live in the camera. But compositing, I mean, it was used in that time period. It was just, it was an optical process, not a digital one. So it's right. true that we use digital compositing instead of optical compositing, but the principle of compositing is still a perfectly vintage thing to do, which we did when there was no other way to do it. Um, there's, a sh there's a shot where um, uh, when, Professor Angel is walking away from the Providence Art Club down the street, and we shot it on location in Providence at the Providence Art Club. But we couldn't afford to, you know, block the streets and have real vintage cars and stuff going by. And there are buildings there now that weren't there then. So we had to use mats and miniature cars and various other things to composite together this whole shot of him walking down the street. And we used you know, static photos of vintage lamp posts and things in the foreground. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, there was a whole lot of trickery going on to capture of, you know, what we think that street might have looked like back in 1926. Um, and then we used forced perspective miniatures for, for you know, we, we built relay at three different sizes, a, a super miniature one that the sailors see in the distance, and then a large miniature one for the stop motion animation and then a full size one that real actors could climb around on so uh and we we blended the large miniature with the full size one using compositing in several shots of the sailors walking around in relay cool yeah i i hadn't consciously realized that at the time but as you pointed out the three different ones i was able to picture the shots that i'm yeah. sure they were each used in so that's really and, cool and you know the fact that it's in black and white 
is another thing where it's like we got away with murder because it was in black and white. If you had seen these sets and miniatures in color, they looked ridiculous. Yeah, but in black and white, they look pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. You only have to sort of match hue in order to get things to match. All about than... yeah, tone instead of color. Yeah. Yeah, I don't. I don't know if you've seen the the uh, making of uh, documentary that's on the the DVD disc, but uh, it does have some amusing <laughs> anecdotes shared by the the cast of some of the the kooky stuff and getting a chance to see what like some of the costumes looked like in color, uh, which was uh, quite again quite a different experience from seeing it in the black and white. <laughs> Yeah, um, I haven't, but I'll watch that after this interview. Uh, so talking again about um, the future, what do you think uh, is coming up um, in terms of technological developments or anything else that you think uh, is going to affect the future of independent filmmaking. It sounds like you're interested in becoming less independent. You said you wanted to try to work with an established production company uh, on whatever you make next, um, which sounds like you're perhaps frustrated with the difficulties of doing these things completely independently. Um, I'm curious where you see both the, the future of filmmaking like this in general and the future of uh, the specific things you're planning on doing, um, how you see that changing. Hmm. Well, I think the general, you know, the trend for quite some time now has been, you know, that things are getting smaller and cheaper and easier to do. Like Sean said earlier, you can now shoot a feature film on your phone in a way that, you know, certainly wasn't possible even five or 10 years ago, and now is. Now the, the cutting edge special effects things like you know the volume where you can do post-production in advance basically and put real actors into a you know cycloramic computer generated environment and get all that stuff in the camera so that even the actors are interacting with you know the Star Wars universe on set in a way they never have before you know lovecraftian are, stories are you talking about the thing with, with the, the large curved screen exactly yeah okay you know lovecraftian stories a lot of them take place in fantastical locations involve huge monsters or other dimensions or you know islands rising up from the sea things that are you know you can't just shoot with a couple of actors in a in a room you need you need a lot of extra stuff and that stuff is getting it's still out of reach of independent people but if the trend continues presumably that kind of special effects technology will only become more affordable and more accessible to people at the low end of the spectrum like like we are is my guess yeah. that that makes sense um that's interesting that you mentioned about how uh, lovecraft's stories are frequently set in these fantastical locales um which is absolutely true for things like dream quest of unknown Kadath. uh but personally when i think of the lovecraft short stories that really stuck with me they uh they're either um as as you've said a few times now like some people in an apartment like uh, cool air or um set almost entirely in you know naturalistic settings and then at the end it gets kind of crazy like the call of cthulhu or the rats in the walls um mm -hmm. or they're set entirely in a naturalistic location and then only have like a, a few um sort of supernatural elements in them like um the shadow over innsmouth uh Ooh. All right. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, you know, <laughs> the picture in the house, Shadow over yeah, um, requires a fleet. Well, here's of one of the, the things that I'd swimming in the ocean. The, from yeah. from a from a writing perspective, you know, there are stories like, you know, Andrew and I have spent a lot of time adapting Lovecraft stories into into feature length projects. Because in the audio world, we've done, you know, now uh, a couple dozen of them. Um, and that's you know stories like Pickman's model or or you know the the rats in the wall or picture in the house you know these small ones they're not feature films they are not 
you know, they are small events written <laughs> written for pulp magazines. You know, they are not long. There is no character development. You know, there is no there is no feature film story being told in them. And so that was kind of get back to the beginning of the conversation. If you want to make a feature film out of, you know, some of these stories, they really require, you know, bringing some characters to them and putting some people in them and, and they yeah. require endings, which Lovecraft was not big on ending. <laughs> Stop. Um, so, you know, there are a number of adaptation challenges that I think a lot of Lovecraft works demand in order to, uh, in, in order to make something feature worthy. Um, and I think, you know, in terms of adaptation there, there or, or in terms of, you know, that issue of naturalistic, well, yeah, the shadow over Innsmouth is naturalistic, but it's a world that doesn't exist anymore. You know, it's something that has to be I mean, I guess if you're going to do it as a modern day, maybe there's some, you know, slummy seaside town you could use. But if you want to try and capture that, you know, 20s and 30s world, which at least for us has been a big part of the aesthetic, it really does. You're talking about building uh, something new and synthetic and a lot of it's pretty demanding, um, you know, to try and even if you were going to try and create it in the the uh, Call of Cthulhu style, you know, you'd need to build a miniature of Innsmouth. You'd need to, you know, again, you got a lot of stuff that's happening in the ocean and, you know, swimming monsters. And, you know, there are thousands of monsters in, in that story moving. That's not one shot alone is like, yeah, there's, you know, the whole sequence of, of the yeah. old time raid when Obed Marsh was in prison and, you know, the deep ones came to his rescue. You either have to, you know, if you don't fully dramatize it, which requires an army of deep ones and an entire town, uh, then you have to cut it. And that's a significant thing to cut from that story. So, yeah, Shadow Over Innsmouth is by no means an easy uh, story to turn into a feature film, in my opinion. Oh, which, yeah, I, I, I didn't mean to suggest that it would be easy to adapt. I no. meant that, like, especially if one does uh, uh, update it to be set in the modern day, um, then it like you said, film it in an actually existing crumbling seaside town. Uh, and there is an enormous amount of the production value already. And I could see something like um, make one really good deep one costume and then uh, present like a, a, a crowd of them with like shadows or silhouettes or something like that. Um, so not, no, not that we to get into the weeds on that. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, but, uh, you mentioned, um, Sean, you mentioned, uh, how people need to sort of add characters if they want to, uh, adapt these into, adapt these short stories into feature length films. Um, and yeah, that was something that, uh, that I typically ask people I'm interviewing, um, since I typically interview genre filmmakers, um, in horror, uh, one of the most important things in general, in my experience, is getting the audience to have strong feelings about the characters, either getting them to love the characters and want to see them be safe or getting them to hate the characters and look forward to them being in danger. Um, and in an adaptation like this, uh, you don't really have the freedom to create the specificity of character like that that you do in a wholly original script and you um and and furthermore you're adapting from an author who as you said uh famously is more focused on ideas than on characters and so i'm curious uh how that um affected your uh your writing process um, and how you managed to, because you did successfully manage to get me to like, you know, care about and be invested the whole time, the whole way through, um, despite me not having especially strong opinions about any of the specific characters. And I'm curious if you could talk a bit about uh, how you accomplished that. Well, you know, Lovecraft was not personally particularly interested in human beings. He liked tone, he liked atmosphere, he liked architecture, but, you know, people and their emotions was just, really not that interesting to him and so he did not put a lot of time or effort in that really in you know uh really in any of his stories 
but of course, when we we see motion pictures or you know uh, plays or things like that, where we go through something that's an experience in real time, the characters we watch are emotional ciphers for us that draw us more deeply into the story. And the stronger our psychological bond as an audience is with characters we watch, then generally the more emotionally rewarding the experience of of a film or or play is. So with The Call of Cthulhu, we really didn't want to monkey, we, we, we didn't really want to bring any new elements into the story. So we're not going to give, uh, you know, Francis Whalen Thurston a, a dog or a wife or a trusty sidekick or, you know, we just didn't want that new kind of baggage. It was like, how can we really try and directly just tell this story the way it's written? And there we actually deliberately leaned into the obscurity of, Kind of not knowing who the protagonist is. In some ways, it doesn't even matter who the protagonist of Call of Cthulhu is. You know, we called him the man. He never has a name in, in the motion picture. Yeah, I noticed. Because that. he then, with this notion of trying to let him be every man, he could be us if our weird uncle left us a box full of weird stuff and we stumble into the secrets and we see all these revelations. So, and it's not so much about him and how he uniquely reacts to all these phenomenon it's about how we anyone could stumble into this you know this vast mystery that's so much bigger than they are and that's where the terror you know he again he's a cipher for us and so once he puts all the pieces together his mind is kind of blown and you know i, I think the hope was that the audience would you know feel the same way it's like wow this if this had happened Oh, that would have been a mind-blowing thing to happen to 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 me or to anyone who to whom these greater secrets were revealed. Okay. So there, you know, we really deliberately stayed away from a whole lot of character. And and Matt Foyer, who plays the man, is a terrific actor, and he's he, you know he he's he's I think good at you know he 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 draws and holds our attention. Um, but in that film, it's not a, a particularly going on an emotional journey with him. And then with the same actor, you know, Matt also uh, was in The Whisper in Darkness. And there we really did want to introduce Albert Wilmarth as a unique human being and a, as a backstory and a history. And he's been through certain life experiences and, you know, we're, we're feeling what he's feeling um, as he goes on his journey, so. And to continue a little bit with what Sean was saying, as far as the Call of Cthulhu goes, you know, at the very end of the film, the man, hands off his story to the listener, the other character to whom, and we see in the closing frames of the film, the listener's mind gets blown as he starts reading the creepy document left behind. So it's like the man has his experience and then hands it off to the next guy who also doesn't have a name, but who, you know, he gets infected with the same you know, brain virus that has driven the, the man mad. Which was in turn handed to the man. You know, it's this right. ongoing chain of, yeah. of here's, here's things you ought not know. <laughs> Enjoy them. <laughs> oh, you've Oop. gone mute, Thomas. Uh, very reminiscent of Lovecraft's style of sort of directly addressing the, the reader. Yeah. yeah, and that was one of the other things we wanted a, a sense of, of going, all right, if this story is being told, to whom is it being told and why? And in watching The Call of Cthulhu, you don't actually quite put together to whom it's being told and, and what's going on until the end of the film, where the, the context is most complete. Yeah. Cool, thank you, that was really interesting. Um, well, we've run through all of the questions uh, that I had prepared. Um, thank you so much for uh, talking with me for this time. Um, for anyone listening who would like to see more or hear more of the works of the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society, their website is hplhs.org. Uh, and if you have anything else that you would like to uh, mention or promote, or if you use social media and would like people to follow you on there, uh, please. Uh, we have a huge... We have... <laughs> How many Facebook groups do we have now, Sean? <laughs> too, too many. Uh, too many. I don't know. We, yeah, we have at least a half dozen going there. Um, 
and you know we have a large web present we have a website that's got lots of fun and interesting stuff related to lovecraft and some of the weird stuff we do uh we have a big store where we make and sell a whole variety of lovecraft uh you know uh entertainment for lovecraft fans uh, not all of it in antique formats either some of it you can download that's right <laughs> downloads in real time and everything so yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, if you Google up Lovecraft Historical, you'll find us, and uh, our, our presence is pretty conspicuous. And uh, check out uh, what we do. We have a podcast called Voluminous, uh, which is uh, Lovecraft. Some people don't realize that in addition to his stories, was the most voluminous letter writer in American history. Uh, and we do a podcast that dives into uh, his letters and uh, is an interesting way to, to uh, get to know the guy behind these scary stories. And uh, that's part of what we do, too. Yeah. Oh man. Just brief aside on the subject of um, horror authors and letter writer. Uh, have you? Have either of you been um, following along with Dracula Daily? No. Don't know it. No. Oh, it's um. So it's it's an email mailing list, which uh, I don't know how long it's been since you've read the original Dracula, but it's in the form of a series of letters between the different characters, and right. the letters have dates on them. And so what it is, is it's a mailing list such that every day it emails you the letters that are dated for that day. And mm. so it's a sort of in real time. Uh, mm. um, and and I, I think it's a fascinating uh, way of experiencing a fictional story th that I hope other people pick up that idea and run with it because it's I'm really enjoying it. That is a um, fun idea. That is interesting, yeah. Can you, and if you subscribe, if I subscribe to it today, would I pick up in the middle of the story or would I start from the beginning and then go from there? Uh, I am confident that they would start s sending you the middle of the story emails. Right. Um, I'm not certain what would happen with the ones that predate that. I'm, right. I'm not involved with this in any way. I'm, yeah, I yeah, like yeah. It. yeah, that's um, an idea. Uh, okay, well, once again, thank you so much for uh, in participating in this interview and i uh i look forward to seeing whatever you create next uh you produce so many things that it's difficult to keep up with uh and i wish you luck with getting uh some sort of contract with a production company and and proper distribution so that more people can appreciate uh these excellent films that you've made well thanks and we'll look forward to talking to that friend of yours and see if we can make any headway on our own Indeed, yeah. I will put uh, you in contact with uh, Len after uh, uh, in just a few minutes. Okay. All right. Thanks so much. Thank Thanks, you again. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.